And for Gene Shepard, humorist, after-dinner speaker, and recipient of the Mark Twain Award for unbelievably fantastic, totally creative lyrics to that, which are only available if you're over 21 and a guaranteed sociology student or professor. You don't hand this stuff out to the hoi polloi. Oh, there is a tavern in the town, and there my true love sets them down. Look at the P-T-T, in a weeping willow tree, let a tea please, if you will. Style, buddy, style. Some got it, most ain't. And them that ain't think they can get it at Macy's, in the boutique section. Style is much more matter than high boots and plaid pants. It's a matter of attitude. Some got it, most ain't. You're born with it, buddy. Nothing is sadder than to watch Marty, the eternal Marty, shopping for style at Barney's at the Edwardian Road. Uh, a couple of nights ago, we uh, began work on uh, on a uh, major essay on one of the new major industries of our time, which is the blabber industry. And uh, I'm going to continue that. Now, if you don't know what blabber is, uh, it's, well, let's say by definition almost anything Truman Capote writes. Uh, Blabber, (laughs) or almost anything uh, Nora Ephron writes, this is called blabber. And it's usually very, very egotistical, like... uh, you know, you'll never guess who I saw last night at 21. And oh my God, was he drunk. This kind of thing. See, this is called blabber. And uh, it's a major industry these days. Uh, and we're going to call our blabber department here a salute to Rona Barrett. Uh, she's, of course, a, one of the major bar- uh, blabber queens. And uh, we'll get into that. <laughs> I suppose, though, you shouldn't use that word these days, what with uh, liberation movements on all fronts. So, uh, uh, by the way, speaking of liberation movements, I have a friend who is a uh, who is a, a tape recorder addict. Now, I might add, I do not approve of addictions of any type. I think addictions of any type uh, bespeak illness. You agree, gang? Unless, <laughs> okay. uh, uh, of course, it's uh, the, the best thing to do is to have an addiction for something that you cannot afford. At which point, uh, it cannot grab you down there deep where you live. I mean, no, really, seriously, if you if you have an addiction, let's say, to uh, mm, uh, old charter bourbon, for example, well, now, 
you'll find for 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 starters, you'll have to search high and low uh, for your average liquor store to even have heard of Old Charter Bourbon. So you're not going to you're not going to give in to that addiction quickly. Uh, if you don't know what that is, that's the that's the bourbon that ancient Southern colonels drank when the guests had left. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, it's the real thing, they say. So uh, this is the kind of uh, addiction that I do not necessarily disapprove of. However, I, I think that the addiction to media today is approaching madness in our time. Yeah, though there are some people who, uh, you see them in New York more than anywhere else, they walk around no matter where they go, and they carry this radio with them roaring constantly, unintelligibly, in the middle of the giant din of taxi cabs, hurling invectives from one to the other. And this guy's walking down the street, and he's got this thing going. And uh, they, they come complete. You know, you can get the cassette uh, types. You can get types that... Uh, uh, you can walk around the streets and listen to nothing but the police calls. Uh, you know, the, the addiction to media is, uh, is really rapidly approaching the St. Vitus phenomena of the Middle Ages. Uh, you recall who the saint was, and uh, you do, of course. Then we don't have to discuss that. You know what, how he achieved his sainthood. Well, then, for God's sakes, don't pretend knowledge you don't have. That is absolutely the worst kind of problem you can get yourself into. And uh, Saint Vitus uh, was a prominent saint, and he achieved sainthood. He would have been astounded to discover what later on his name was applied to, as was also the case of Saint Valentine. Saint Valentine never once cut out a paper heart and send it to anybody. In fact, uh, St. Valentine was a notorious curmudgeon. But uh, I don't want to get into that. That's, uh, you know, I, I hate to touch upon people's deep-held theological concepts. So, uh, you know, uh, time is of the essence. It is, indeed. And uh, it's the only thing that any of us all have. We are all given at, at birth. Uh, we're given an allotment of time. And uh, what you do with it in between, you know, there's like like the other day, there was this full-page ad in the Times, you know, you see you see some pre pretty funny things in the ads, actually. It shows this girl looking out of this page. By the way, have you noticed that the faces have changed on ads? And now they're, they're looking vaguely embattled and angry. Like, for example, oh, yes, now think carefully. You drive along the road and you see this great big signboard, and there's this guy looking out. He looks real mad, seeing he's got his shirt torn open. He's wearing what looks like a, a tiger's tusk on a chain around his neck. And he says, I don't question why I smoke. I like the taste. You see, obviously, he's mad because everybody is saying, well, when are you stoop? When are you going to give that up, you know? And now, now of course, uh, he's, he's embattled. And uh, no longer do you see the ads where people grin. You know, they're sitting there on the... Remember those great cigarette ads? The guy sitting on the bank of a stream with this chick, and you see the sparkling water behind, and you just expect something really great to happen. What do they do? They light a cigarette. What a calm down. But uh, I suppose in certain circles, cigarettes did substitute for the real thing. <laughs> in movie parlance, they always did, you know, and Fred Astaire was really getting close to Ginger Rogers. Instead of reaching out and grabbing her, what he did, they very casually lit a cigarette with an ivory cigarette holder. And you knew the true love had come. But uh, my friend, uh, speaking of addiction, is addicted to this tape recorder. The only problem is he lives in a very dull world. And if you live in a dull world, 
there's damn little to tape record. I mean, you can tape record the sound of your Aunt Clara falling asleep. You can uh, tape record the sound of the radiator making that funny noise that it makes. Uh, all these things are, are her fodder for the tape recorder addict. And uh, he has collected a series of recordings of various automobiles and clunkers of our time, either starting or not quite starting. And he has a great uh, collection of them. He has a 63 Dodge Dart. He has a uh, 67 Ford Galaxy with bad valves. Uh, where they came with bad valves. That's a funny thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> George. <laughs> Many people just drove them right out of the showroom, right to the garage, you know. Get it fixed up for you and get out there on the road, you know. But uh, nevertheless, uh, he's got all these great things. Now, for example, here, here's one of the prizes of his collection. This is a 56 Pontiac attempted to, attempting to start. Well, uh, may I please have that? <laughs> Listen to that thing. Isn't that unbelievable? No, it isn't. Not if you own one. God, it's familiar, isn't it? Look at that. That battery's going down and everything. Almost. There he almost got it. Okay. That is a 56 Pontiac. Uh, in case you're curious, it was the Starfire model. That's a 56 Pontiac uh, that was attempting to start. A very familiar sound to many owners of that breed. Uh, that uh, that car had more iron in it per square foot of, of beaten tin than any other model of that period. Great car. All right, now we will uh, we will give you the sound of the same car, a '56 Pontiac, after they have taken it down to the shell station, had the battery recharged again, put new plugs in, which they had to do every maybe 20 or 30 minutes. <laughs> drained the carburetor, took all the dead flies out of that little glass pot on the bottom, and uh, they finally were able to achieve success. This is the sound of a 56 Pontiac starting. You notice it's not willing, but it ain't going to do it easy. Oh, my God, what a great feeling. <laughs> there you go. Look at all that smoke. My George. Great. Isn't that a great sound? That is the sound of a 56, seriously, a sound of a 56 Pontiac just getting, you know, getting it all together, which was a big phrase for that period. Oh, yes, in 56, everything, they were always getting things together. Well, anyway, uh, I thought you'd like to hear that 56. Can I have that 56 Pontiac? It's starting again. That's a good satisfaction. You know, the summation and the consummation of all that is in my heart. Come on, baby. Come on. Come on. Come on. It ain't that cold out. Come on. Buddy. All right. Come on now. Hold your breath. There, it's starting. I, I saw it kick over. Look, you're going to run the battery down. Cut it out, you damn fool. Stop it. I hate to hear a battery being run down like that. You know, another one of the great uh, sights that curdle the uh, soul of anybody who loves machines is the sight of a, uh, a 49-year-old lady getting into her 67 Buick uh, at the uh, parking lot of the A&P and then sticking a the key in and turning it on and going, Whoa! instantly. Oh, God. 
a lot of people don't know. <laughs> That's an understatement. And by the way, wouldn't you get really bugged if this lady came around your office with that coffee cart and she keeps making instant coffee? Oh, boy, I'd kick her right down the elevator shaft. I mean, anybody who confuses instant coffee for coffee probably also tends to live in a balsa wood house. Hey, do you know that the newest hot toy around is a wind-up cockroach? Well, I, th I think that's, uh, you know, that's teaching the kids what life's going to be like. Uh, you know that there's a new game called Famine? Sure. Well, you know, board game, you know? You know move two spaces. You have, just, you have just been transferred to the outskirts of Calcutta. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's really sick, I'll tell you. Uh, there's a board game called Famine. There's one called Unemployment. And that's a fun game. I notice, though, the only people who play it are those with damn good jobs and really tough unions. <laughs> I know one guy that just figured out, you know, he figured out where the power really was. He quit working entirely. Now he works entirely for his union. That's kind of like theologians, you know. You know what? You know what? As a theologian, you know the Middle Ages. See, the theologian got so involved in the in the theory of the church, uh, not even in the theory of the church, in the theory of theology, which had nothing to do ultimately with the church. And uh, so, eventually, a whole new professional class grew that had nothing to do with good and evil, and the devil and God and any of this stuff. They dealt with a thing called theology, and they issued things called dicta. You know, uh, I, 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 <laughs> that style, isn't it? you know, I, I, I'd like to, instead of sending a memo to someone, issue a dicta. In fact, the other day, I pinned down the door of my office a white paper. Well, you have to do that occasionally, to clear the air, you know, a white paper, a statement of policy. Henceforth, anybody that fools around with any of my junk will be subject to the extreme pressure that can come from the... Various forces at work in this office. Like I will kick you in the behind. And uh, I'm just not a sensitive person. I, I'm not. I, 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 uh, I, I've always envied the sensitive. And uh, just like one time I met Philip Roth. Very sensitive. Oh, he was just vibrating. He kept crawling around on the floor. And, and uh, I, he went finally under the day bed. And I didn't want to say, you know, I was over at Gay Talisa's house. And I said, what's the matter with him? And Talisa says, well, you know, he's sensitive. That's nice, sensitive. Nice. <laughs> but I've always envied the sensitive. I really have. Uh, you know, the people who can, who can walk through life believing that they are pure, uh, pure crystalline creatures and that they are being uh, remorselessly attacked by the evil, uh, always represented by other people, of course. And uh, I've envied those people like that. I mean, it hasn't done me much good. I mean, you know, the people who feel that their position is always the right position because they are a good person. And a good person can only be on the right side of the angels. That's known as the Lillian Hellman complex. That's what it's called. Hi, Lillian. How are you? Well, don't worry. She's not listening. She hasn't listened to anyone in years. She tells people, would you uh, please uh, uh, just, just be calm for a minute now? Uh, I... I uh, 
The other day, I I, uh, I must admit, in in passing, I I uh, opened up a can of uh, what is it that you open up a can of? Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. I opened up a can of. No, uh, uh, no, no, no. Fruit Loops don't come in cans. I I. Uh, by the way, uh, I uh, <laughs> I I've always. Uh, I'd like to see uh, Roosevelt Greer sitting down to a breakfast of Fruit Loops. You know uh, that. Uh, of course, this, this is this is the kind of thing that uh, that it takes a certain specialized taste and humor to understand that type of humor. That's just not Woody Allen humor. No, no. But uh, then again, Woody Allen's humor. You know, that's another thing. A little brittle there, and it tends to blow in the wind. But uh, while on the subject of blowing in the wind, I do have to approach tonight's uh, topic with some trepidation. This is this is uh, the night we were going to tell you the story of the how I first discovered the blabber world. Now I I know I shouldn't tell you this. You know, there's certain ethic uh, really ethical problems involved in this because you know uh, doctors, for example, rarely will talk to an outsider about re what really is going on in his world. He may talk about something, about a new disease or something, but he will never discuss much of the the real secrets of the profession. It's an ethical thing, right? You'll never hear... Now, there are certain other ethics. For example, you'll never hear a newsman is always attacking, right? But only politicians. You will never see a newsman attack another newsman. So, for example, you will never see Walter Cronkite come on some night and say, uh, Tonight's editorial, we want to take severe issue and great umbrage at something that John Chancellor did the other night. You just won't find that. <laughs> you know, it's never done. Well, because uh, one does not attack one's own kind. In fact, this was said to me by a famous newsman when I brought up the subject. He says, well, you know, you don't attack your own kind. Unless you're a politician. Which point you're constantly attacking the other? Well, by the way, I must—I have to correct that. A person who is attacking another person in the field of politics never refers to himself as a politician. The other guy's a politician. You are either a statesman or a reformer. So uh, <laughs> this is it's a very important differential here that has to be made, and uh, of course that's uh, that's all part of the evangelical uh, zeal with which many people pursue office. And uh, often the evangelical zeal consists in that, achieving office. You'd be surprised. Just, I mean, I, I, I'm always surprised that we don't understand this better. I mean, we all, you know, we all know other human beings. I mean, uh, you may not know yourself. <laughs> That's the hardest one to know. But we all know other human beings. And we know uh, one, of the, one of the most common of all human things is a guy pursuing a girl with uh, unbelievable uh, tenacity, zealousness. And ten minutes after he has achieved his goal, he yawns and suggests that we all go out for salami sandwiches. And she can't figure out why he changed. Well, the pursuit of a goal is often far more exciting than the achievement of a goal. In other words, the contemplation of a Mercedes and the pursuit of a Mercedes is a hell of a lot more fun than having one. 
I'll tell you that. Especially after the first time to try to get that baby tuned up, and they send you the bill for it. At which point, uh, and that's what happens in human equation. You know, you pursue this girl, and the next thing you know, you got rent payments. That takes the blush off the thing there, doesn't it, huh? But <laughs> you never bargained for that in the back seat of your Pontiac on the Route 3 drive-in. But uh, these things, these things pursue you relentlessly. Oh, oh, you want to hear it now? See, I'm, 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 I'm uh, really arguing here in favor of not telling you the inside of the blabber industry. No, yes, you don't just go ahead and tell you, because you see, you'd be surprised. Industries are funny this way. Uh, even though the audience wants to hear these things, the person who is involved always has his own private uh, career going which the audience doesn't have any, you know. Not. For example, you see somebody being interviewed on a, on a TV show, on Johnny Carson, so, and they're talking about a director. Do you think he's going to tell you the truth about that director? You do. Why do you think that? Why not? I can think of at least 50 reasons why not, and certainly his agent can. <laughs> I want to tell you, you're not going to blow yourself right out of the water, are you? Oh, well, if you do, you'd be surprised. Uh, I don't think they're keeping Robert Redford's job open at the Esso station where he used to work. Yeah, very seriously, that's where he'd damn well be if he, if he blew his mouth off in the wrong places. So, uh, you know, everyone walks in a certain way, no matter how honest he thinks he is. He walks in certain areas upon a bed of uncooked eggs. Now, you don't necessarily walk on that same bed, and you don't even know it's there if it's in the other guy's garden. But, uh, all right, I'll tell you about the blabber industry. This friend of mine, no, I'll just, I won't go into it deeply, so come on, don't. This friend of mine went to uh, a very elegant school out in the Midwest. I mean, a school where, where uh, liberal arts is so liberal and so arty but very few people are even allowed within the door. I mean, people who have normal problems like blowing their nose and stuff. It's a very elegant, uh, very, very uh, uh, dynamic school. And he was a star pupil. For four years, he was straight A's there, majoring in English. In fact, he got to the point, kind of halfway in his junior year, and this is the truth, he, he, he had this fantastic memory, and he could quote whole pages of Thomas Wolfe. I'm talking about the real Thomas Wolfe, you know, of Time and the River, Look Homeward Angel. He could, you'd say, and, and you'd, you could, you'd do it uh, by the number. If, you, if I said to him, I would say, Lee, uh, I'd take a, let's say I have uh, of Time and the River, and I would say, Lee... Page 183, Chapter 6. And he would concentrate, and then he would say, Ah, oh, October lost, and by the wind grieved. I said, My God, incredible. <laughs> All right. So he was very, he was really, you know, he was, he was rarefied. I hate to say it, but he was rarefied. I always got to, it got to the point, actually, that I was afraid to light a match near Lee. Because uh, he had almost approached the gaseous state of rarefaction. He was that rarefied. He did not touch the ground. And so then he went on for his master's. And if anything, it was after that, there was no stopping him. 
I mean, he he was translating Homer from the Lithuanian. I mean, he didn't mess around with the Greek. Hell, anyone can do that. So uh, he <laughs> so he he was just uh, you know that kind. So finally, he decided to come to New York and to test his uh, lance against the uh, the uh, mean, evil shield of the New York literati. He was going to get a job. He always said, what I'm going to do, I'm going to get a job at some place like the Saturday Review. And he said, I want to get my feet wet in the whole world, the wonderful, exciting world of literature. And then uh, from there, I will go on to, well, I have a whole series of novels written in the form of trilogies, uh, which in a sense will denounce the entire history of Western man. You know, that kind of stuff. In poetic terms, of course, a blank verse. I said, gee, that's a great idea, Lee. I mean, uh, that's, I can hardly wait. Uh, let me know when it comes out in paperback. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know. So uh, he, he took off. And I think he was so rarefied at that point, he didn't have to buy a plane ticket or anything. He just sort of floated out. And by osmosis, he entered New York. Well, I did not hear. You know who osmosis is, don't you? Well, you've heard the term osmosis, haven't you? That's by the that's the way Jerseyites get into New York every day. You can't get through the damn tunnel. So, uh, nevertheless, <laughs> well, that's capillary action. <laughs> you know, we could get into Bottenutli's principle too there, because Bottenutli's principle is when you go down to the uh, to the tunnel, you know, the Holland Tunnel, and there's twenty eight thousand cars going in there. And if you notice, they go much faster when they get inside. That's Bottenutli's principle. Water rushes through a small enclosed opening, producing heat. That's why guys come out of the other end this fight like hell. But, uh, you know, I don't like to, you know, throw my great knowledge at you like this. At this time, I know it's a, been a tough day, and I don't want to bring up physics again, moments of inertia, and all that junk. <laughs> Who needs it? Anyway, my friend came to New York. A year, year and a half went by. And I never heard a word from him. And so finally, uh, after a couple of years, I, I came to New York myself. And I said, you know, one of the things I was going to do when I first came to New York is I'm going to see Lee. I'm going to look Lee up. Well, I had an address for Lee. And so, sure enough, about a week after I got to town, I went down to this address. And it was a brownstone over on... The West Side in the 70s. I mean, one of the, <laughs> let's put it this way, you have to fist fight your way to the, to the house and fist fight your way out. And uh, so I, I go up three flights, and I, I notice some very interesting non-poetic things written all over the walls. And, uh, and I could, uh, you know, there was a, there was a very pungent aroma uh, hanging over the hallway down there at the bottom. And uh, you know the aroma. So I finally got my way up to the third floor there, seeing there's this green door. And I pound on it. I, I, I see this eye peeking out of this little brass peephole. And uh, I hear a muffled, what do you want? I said, it's me, Lee, it's me. Who? I said, me, don't you remember me? Oh, October, and by the wind grieved. Oh, the unturned stone. And he says, what are you doing here? I said, I have come to see you. He said, why? I said, what do you mean, why? I did not realize, of course, I was in New York. And uh, New Yorkers are always very suspicious of anyone who comes not bearing brass knuckles. 
so at that point, you know, I, I, I said, come on, Lee, for God's sakes, i got to use the John. So at that point, you know, he, I, I didn't know what he was. He said, why not use the hall? Everybody else does. I said, Lee, come on, open the door. So finally the door opens. I hear chains and bolts and locks going back and forth, clunking. And they finally get inside, and he had these great big bars, you know, that go up against the door. Have you ever seen that kind? He had chains and locks and all kinds of stuff, and he was in his jockey shorts. He had a three-day growth of beard. I said, Lee, how is it going? Are you working on your novel? He says, look, I don't have time to talk to you. What do you want? I said, I'm talk about literature and wonderful things. And Jane Austen and irony and all that great stuff. So I got work to do. And he's squatting down at this this ancient typewriter, and he's pounding away. And I said, what are you doing, Lee? He says, I'm writing this guy's column. I said, you're writing this guy's column? What do you mean? Lee's job was to write the column for a local gossip columnist. The gossip columnist has gotten so big, he doesn't go to the office. I mean, he spent all his time down at 21 drinking. And Lee wrote this thing. He would write things like, uh, Tina Louise's new chihuahua is now dyed green. And I said, where did you hear that? Lee says, what do you mean hear it? I write it. I just make it up. He says, you don't think that she's going to get mad at that, do you? I says, no, Lee, that's true. He says, I'm, I'm working in the blabber industry. Shut up, I don't have no time. Talk about an ink-stained wretch. He was writing about Johnny Weissmuller's comeback. I says, is he coming back? He says, no, he ain't coming back. I'm writing it. Over in the west side, Lee is still sequestered in that fetid apartment. And he doesn't need wind-up cockroaches. You don't need the wind-up model when you got the real thing. And he's sitting over there, popping it away. And it was at that point I began to realize very few columnists even write their columns. And what's more, the blabber guy that writes the column for him does not get handouts. He invents them. Like uh, President Ford's favorite brand of cigar comes from Havana. No, he just writes it. And then it becomes part of the graven word. Ultimate, you know, ultimately, this kind of stuff even gets into biographies. It gets official. And it all comes from the world of blabber. There will be more on this next week. Listening to Gene Shepard, humorist, author, and recipient of the Mark Twain Award for 1976.